Good morning. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, and it just so happens that uh, my favorite team, of whom I've been a fan my whole life, is playing in the Super Bowl. And so uh, I was I was going to preach. No, it's not the yeah. <laughs> I was going to preach in a jersey, you know, to, to have team spirit. And Corinne said no. She she dresses me. Uh, she said. She said, no, that's not very dignified. You know, it's, this is church. It's, it's not about football. It's about the Lord. And she said, you really shouldn't use the pulpit to uh, advocate for any one team anyway. That's not really appropriate. And so I, I don't have a jersey on, but um, I did forget my Bible. Just a minute. Let me, <laughs> let me uh, get my Bible. If <laughs> Thank you. Go team. I'm full of them today, but uh. <laughs> yeah. All right. So it is Super Bowl Sunday, but the Packers aren't playing, so all of you are here, and that's great. Uh, we are going to dig into God's Word together, and uh, this is um, a, a Sunday, special Sunday every year. We call it the State of the Church Address, and so uh, I've been here, this is my third February with you, and uh, this is the third State of the Church Address. So uh, as we were praying right before the service, the Lord brought uh, an analogy or an illustration to my mind that's actually not what I had in my opening uh, notes, and so, but I feel like God brought it to mind, so I thought I would share it. When you were a kid, do you, did you ever see the, uh, the original Rocky movies, Rocky Balboa, remember that? Yeah, how many of you like those movies? I bet when I was a kid, I watched the original Rocky series probably 25 times. It was one of my all-time favorite. Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, you know, he's this down-and-out, barely-surviving boxer uh, that, that really can't get a break. And then the, the world champion heavyweight, Apollo Creed, decides that he's going to give a nobody a shot at the title. This is the very first, so, so they randomly somehow select Rocky Balboa to, to this no-account no boxer. He, he doesn't have anything, and he's going to get now a chance to fight the world championship boxer for a, a shot at the title, you know. And, and so um, he, it, the whole movie is about it, this training that he goes through and all this stuff, and then, you know, the last half of the movie is just the boxing match, and uh, it's that old 1970s uh, filming, which is it's just kind of classic. And uh, Anyway, he goes through, and, and Rocky Balboa never imagined that he would actually win, and he didn't. He didn't win in the first movie. Uh, he lost, but what he set out to do was something that no other boxer who had ever faced off against Apollo Creed had done, and that was to go the entire 15 rounds. No other boxer had ever went the distance with Apollo, against Apollo Creed. And so Rocky, he doesn't think that he's actually going to win, but he's not trying to win. He's just trying to go the distance. And you see, you see them boxing, and I know it's a movie, it's not real, but uh, you know, the, he is just beaten to, to a bloody pulp by the end of the movie, but he, he makes it. He goes the full 15 rounds. And there's this little scene right at the end of the movie um, or it might be at the beginning of the second movie, I can't remember, where they're in, he and Apollo Creed are in the hospital together recovering after their fight. And Apollo Creed like rolls into the, his room in a wheelchair and he says, nobody's ever gone the distance with me before. 
And, of course, in the second movie, they fight, and, and Rocky wins, and, and, you know, it's all that. But it's so interesting that he didn't set out necessarily to win. He didn't even think that he was going to win, and actually, he didn't win. But he endured. He went the distance in spite of the pain, in spite of getting beaten to a bloody pulp, in spite of everything. He wanted to know if he could do it, if anybody could do it, right? And so... Um, I think that the Lord is asking us this morning, are you willing to go the distance? Not necessarily to win the championship, but are you willing to endure? Are you willing to go the distance? Think about that in your walk with Christ. Through the pain, through the hardship, through the challenges, through the struggle, are you willing to endure, to go the distance, to make it all 15 rounds? This, this sermon today, this is the State of the Church Address, and, and I mentioned earlier that we've done, this is the third one that I've done at Lakeview Church uh, with you. In 2018, the State of the Church uh, Address, we said we'd been asking God, what are you doing? And, and uh, several people had shared this verse with me, Isaiah 43, 19, which says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And it seemed to a lot of uh, leaders and a lot of people at Lakeview and to me that God was going to do something new and we needed to see it. We needed to perceive what he was going to do. And so we said, this is going to be a year of prayer. And we're going to seek God and we're going to listen to him and we're going to see what it is, this, is this new thing that he's doing. Last year, 2019, the state of the church, when I was praying and I said, Lord, what is your vision for the year? What is your direction for us? Uh, he gave me a phrase, specific phrase. Jesus wasn't cool. He was crucified. And then he brought to my mind Galatians 2.20. And I didn't know what Galatians 2.20 said, so I had to look it up. And it says this, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the vision was, this is a year when we are crucified with Christ, when we put to death in our hearts the pride that drives us to be cool or to think that we are something great. This is a year where we really seek to go deep with the Lord and put to death in us the things that compete for affection. Jesus doesn't want to share our hearts. And so he, we, we said, okay, we're going, to, we're going to do that and we're going to pursue that and that's what this past year has been. And in that process, you know, we kind of, uh, we had an elder retreat and we spelled out the direction that God was leading us in this new thing that he's doing in the life of Lakeview Church and the, the new path that he's called us to walk. This year, um, as we, the elders were praying and we were asking the Lord, what is the next step for Lakeview Church? What is your vision for us this year? He gave us another phrase and some verses. The phrase that he gave us this year was, finish what you started. Finish what you started. And the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today is a passage that he gave us uh, at the elder retreat for, that goes along with this idea of finishing what you started. It's Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So if you'll grab a Bible uh, and turn to Luke 14, 25 to 35, um, 
we're going to dig into this, and it's this idea of finish what you've started. God is calling us to go the distance this year. Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25. It's also up on the screen in the NIV. Let me just read through this passage and then we'll dig into what it has for us today. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let me pray and then we'll dig into this passage. Lord, this is a hard word for us today. And there's some challenging things that you said that we have to unravel and figure out how they apply to us. So we invite you to speak through your Holy Spirit and apply your word to our hearts and our minds and our lives in the context of this church family that you've brought us into. And we surrender our presuppositions and pre-understandings and our own ideas and values to the authority of your word And we invite you to speak and encourage and challenge and convict and lift us up so that we can be close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a hard word. And I think what Jesus is saying is go the distance, finish what you started. And in this passage, I want to pull out three implications or three principles or three points or however you want to spell those out. Three implications. The first one is this. Jesus isn't looking for fans but for followers. Jesus isn't searching for spectators, but for recruits. There's a study uh, uh, on Right Now Media and a book that's been written by a pastor in Kentucky named Kyle Eidelman, and the, the name of the series is called Not a Fan. And he makes the point that a lot of people are fans of Jesus, but not many people are followers of Jesus. And Jesus isn't looking for fans. He didn't come and give his life on the cross so that he could have a bigger fan base. He's looking for followers. He's looking for recruits, not spectators. And and he spells that out in this passage. Three times in these verses, he says, such a person cannot be my disciple. Unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you're willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. He says it three different times. And let's look at the three times that he says it. Uh, First of all, he says it in verse 26. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What he's saying in this verse is, Jesus must be the most important person in your life. Now, Jesus is not teaching that we should literally hate our family members. He doesn't say you should actually truly hate your wife or truly hate your children or truly hate your parents. He's not saying that. That would contradict what, what he has taught elsewhere when he teaches us to love others, to love everyone, even to love our own enemies as ourselves. Right? So he's not necessarily saying this is as a literal hate, you have to hate other people in order to be my disciple. This is a figure of speech that was actually fairly common in his day to say, um, if, if you love someone or something more than you love someone or something else, you love the one and hate the other. Right? He, he said, you can't serve two masters, you'll either love the one and hate the other. Right? It doesn't mean you actually hate the other master, it just means you love one more than the other. And that's what he's teaching in this passage. Jesus must be the most important person in your life. He's using this uh, shock effect to make a point. Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to anyone. He doesn't share our hearts, not with our spouses, not with our kids, not with our aging parents, not with our friends, not even with ourselves. Jesus must be number one, the most important person in your life. Now, hearing that, reading that, am I saying, you might be thinking, wait a minute, are you saying that I should love God more than I love my own children? Are you really saying that I should be more committed to God than I am to my own children? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. He's got to be number one. The most important thing, the best thing that you can do, the way that you can love your spouse or your kids or your friends the most is by loving Jesus the most. When you put him first, you'll be able to love them better than if you put them first. You can't really be a disciple unless you're willing to make Jesus the most important person in your life. That's what it means to be a follower. Verse 27 is the second time when he says, such a person cannot be my disciple. He says this, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So just like Jesus must be the most important person in your life, God's will must be the most important direction in your life. See, the path that Jesus walked was a path to the cross, he was following the will of God the Father, and God's will led him to the cross where he was tortured to death for you and for me. But God's will was the most important direction in his life. You remember the night before he was arrested, uh, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what did he pray? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If there's any other way for you to redeem your people without me dying on the cross, let's go that way. But then he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. God's will is the most important thing. God's will was the most important direction for Jesus' life when he was walking on this earth. And God's will must be the most important direction in our life, even if it means following Jesus to the cross. The cross refers to rejection, even death. And there are Christians in the world today brothers and sisters in Christ who actually have to make a decision between Jesus and their family. 
Because if they choose to follow Jesus, they'll be excommunicated. They'll be disinherited. They'll be considered dead to their family members. And they actually have to make a decision between Jesus and sometimes even their own life. Because if they choose to follow Jesus, they could be arrested. They'll be rejected. They could even be uh, beheaded or executed for their faith. We don't face those kinds of challenges here. But we have to be committed to following God's will as the most important direction in our lives, even if that does mean rejection, even when it's not popular, even when it's not politically correct, even when it's not acceptable or beneficial to our standing in society. We have to be willing to go the distance with Jesus. One commentator put it this way, if we cannot walk the path of rejection Jesus walked, then we're not ready for the journey of faith that Jesus calls believers to take. That's what he's saying. God's will must be the most important direction in our lives. The third time he says, such a person cannot be my disciple is in verse 33. Take a look at that. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus must be the most important person in your life. God's will must be the most important direction in your life. And what he's saying here is your relationship with Jesus Christ must be the most important possession in your life. More important than how much money you have or how high you've climbed on the corporate ladder, more important than any other friendship or any other relationship that you have, your relationship with Christ is the most important thing that you possess. And you're willing to sacrifice everything else in your life if you can have that relationship with God. That's what he's saying it takes to be a disciple. The question is, what did you sign up for when you became a Christian? When you prayed that prayer to follow Christ, when you received Jesus, when you decided, I'm going to be a Christian, what were you signing up for? What were you signing, uh, agreeing to? Was it health? Was it wealth? Was it success? Was it prosperity? Was it uh, having the good life? Was it getting away from the pain and the struggles and the challenges of this world? And Jesus is saying, if that's what your motive is, It's like building a tower that you don't have the money to finish. It's like waging a war that you can't win. What did we sign up for when we signed up to be a Christian? Fans like Jesus as long as he performs for them. But followers are committed to follow Christ no matter what. No matter what happens in life, for good or for bad, even if it costs them everything. Yesterday, there's a young couple in our church that got married, and I had the honor of doing their wedding, uh, John Vandegrift and Beth Kundert, now Beth Vandegrift. And they got married yesterday, and it was, it was a lot of fun, and, and as we were going through their ceremony, they said their wedding vows. And it just reminded me of the commitment that Christ asks from us. When a husband and a wife get married, they, they vow to be committed to stay with each other no matter what, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, right? They, so it's not just, I'm going to be here with you as long as you love me and make me happy in life. And then when you don't, I'm out. That's not how what marriage works. It's, it's, hey, guess what? If my life gets better because we're married, 
If you make me happy and we're successful and everything goes well in life, I'm in it, I'm with you. But guess what? Even if you make my life terrible and and we lose all our money and we lose our job and you struggle with health issues, guess what? I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. You're stuck with me through thick and thin, through ups and downs, in the good times and the bad. That's what wedding vows mean. And we're willing to say those to our husband or to our spouse or wife on our wedding day. Jesus says, how much more should you make that commitment to follow me? Through thick and thin, through ups and downs, through the good times and the hard times, through the prosperous times and through the lean times. Followers are committed to follow Jesus no matter what happens, no matter where he leads, even if it costs them everything they have. Are you a fan or are you a follower? In your bulletins on the back of the uh, study guide, there's a little quiz, a little assessment that is an adaption uh, from the book 10 Qualities That Move You from a Believer to a Disciple by Dennis Rouse. I would encourage you to take that home and really contemplate, work through that to figure out, am I a fan or am I a follower? And I'm going to go through a few of them this morning with you, not all of them. The full quiz is on the back of your study guide, but... uh, Here are a few. Just allow the Holy Spirit to move in your heart. Honestly assess where you're at. And listen, no one is 100% all the time, including me. So the first thing towards making progress is being honest with where we're at and allowing the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, you need to grow in this area. And all of us do, including me. So, so here, here are just a few ways to tell, am I a fan or am I a follower? Fans believe in Jesus as their savior, but live to please themselves. Whereas followers believe in Jesus as Lord and live to please God. See, a fan says, hey, I can buy into Jesus saving me from hell and giving me eternal life. That sounds really good to me. But don't get too messy with my life, right? I'm still gonna live my own life. Whereas a follower says, Jesus is not just my Savior, he's my Lord and my God. His wish is my command, no matter what. That's the difference between a fan and a follower. Here's another one. Fans exalt their opinions, feelings, and thoughts above the word of God. Followers submit their opinions, feelings, and thoughts to the authority of the word of God. See, fans are are big-time supporters of Jesus as long as he doesn't violate or contradict anything that they already hold dear and believe. As long as Jesus supports my modern progressive values, I'm all about it. But as soon as Jesus says a message that gets uh, politically incorrect, as soon as God's word challenges what's popularly believed in our society, well, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe the Bible is outdated. We're more modern, we're more progressive, we've moved past those things, right? But followers say, no, no, no. God's word is the authority, period. It doesn't change, even when it's not popular, even when it's not politically correct. Here's another one. Fans think of church as a place they go to hear what God's word says. Followers think of church as a community or a family in which they learn to do what God's word says. See the difference? It's not a place we go to hear God's word. It's a family that we engage in so that we can learn by example how to do what God's word says. Here's another one. Fans serve God when it's convenient. Followers serve God based on conviction. 
well, I'll, I'll be in church when I don't have anything better to do. I'll be in church when, when I don't have another activity or another extracurricular activity for my kids or another this or another that. You know, when, I'm, when I have time, I'll spend it with God. Whereas followers say, hey, Jesus is the priority. And even if that means kicking out some of the other busy activities of my life in order to make God number one. Here's another one. Fans follow God as long as everything is going well. Followers follow God regardless of their circumstances. Here's another one. Fans are full of pride when they're doing well and self-pity when they're not. Followers are full of gratitude because God's love never fails no matter what their situation is. See, fans think that if things are going well, it's because I'm working hard, and if things are not going well, it's because I'm a victim. But followers recognize that God's the one that does the heavy lifting, and his love is always there, and his, his, he is faithful no matter what, and we are filled with gratitude. The last one for this morning, and the others are in your bulletin insert, are fans follow the pattern of the world that seeks to go higher. Followers follow the example of Jesus to humbly go lower. We live in a very narcissistic society that wants to elevate ourselves and make much of ourselves all over social media and all over uh, anything. We, we think the universe revolves around us, but fans say, hey, guess what? I'm not out to get more in life. I'm not out to get higher in life. A, a follower of Jesus says, I'm willing to walk the path that Jesus walked, even if it takes me lower, even if it takes me to the cross, even if it costs everything. That's the first point that, that Jesus is making in this passage. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. Are you a fan or are you a follower? The second implication of this text, Luke 14, is this. Half-hearted disciples are not disciples at all. Non-committal Christians aren't really Christians. And that's a hard word, but this is what Jesus is teaching. Look at verse 34. He has this really weird saying, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, what in the world does salt have to do with hating my father and my mother and, and making Jesus the most important person in my life? And what does salt have to do with taking up my cross and following Jesus? And, and what does salt have to do with being willing to give up everything I have to make Jesus number one? How in the world does salt factor into that? Well, it's, it's like this. What makes salt salt is its saltiness, right? That's what Jesus is saying. If salt is not salty, it's not really salt. And it's not really good for anything that you would use salt for. If you have a substance and it is not salty, it is not salt. Just in the same way, what makes a disciple a disciple is radical, total commitment to Christ. That's what makes a disciple a disciple. If someone doesn't have radical, total commitment to Christ, they're not really a disciple. Any more than a piece of white rock that isn't salty isn't salt. That's what he's saying. A half-hearted disciple is no disciple at all. Now, this is the hardest part of this message for me personally. 
It's the hardest part that convicted me the most, and it's the hardest part for me to, to, to teach. In Luke's gospel, and in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, and in the New Testament in general, but specifically in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, there is no difference between a disciple and a Christian. Luke has no category for someone who's a Christian but not a disciple. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. If you're a disciple, you are a Christian. Luke uses these words synonymously, interchangeably. And what he's saying here is the thing that makes a disciple a disciple is absolute, total, radical, 100% commitment to Christ. If you don't have that, you're not really a disciple. What does that mean? Half-hearted disciples are no disciples. Non-committal Christians are not Christians at all. In our modern church context, we separate a Christian from a disciple. And we say a Christian is somebody who has prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted the message of the gospel. And a disciple is a spiritually mature Christian. So it's possible to be a Christian but not be a disciple. And then we read a passage like this and we say, well, sure, I'm not fully committed to Christ. I'm not really willing to put Jesus above my family. I'm not really willing to put Jesus above my career. I'm not really willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. But guess what? I prayed the sinner's prayer and I'm not burning in hell. That's that's enough for me. I don't really want to walk that hard road to be a spiritually mature Christian. I'll just settle for being, you know, spiritually immature and let the other people teach the Bible studies and lead the life groups and serve as elders and do those things. But, but that's not an option in the New Testament. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. And, and that thinking of separating being a Christian from being a disciple leads us to have all these different kinds of Christians in our society today. We have hobby Christians who serve God when it's convenient. We have casual Christians who are, are willing to, to like the message of the gospel but don't really want to get serious about their faith. We have holiday Christians when I was a kid, we called them CEOs, Christmas and Easter onlys, Christers, right? We have social Christians who are really just in it for the social benefits and the connections and the relationships and the friendships, and that's what they love the most. They're not really in it to be transformed by Christ. They're social Christians. We have fair-weather Christians who are willing to follow Jesus as long as everything's going well in their life, but when the going gets tough, They're out. They're fair-weather Christians. And we have quid pro quo Christians, right? The quid pro quo Christian says, listen, God, I'll do my part. You do your part. God helps those who help themselves, right? So, So I'll show up at church. I'll put money in the offering plate. I'll even sing the songs once in a while. And maybe I'll serve when I have a chance. And I'm doing my part now. God, it's up to you to do your part. Make sure that I have a good job. Make sure that I have a happy family. Make sure that my life goes well. And when God doesn't do his part, the quid pro quo Christian says, hey, I did mine. God didn't do his. I'm out. Because it's not a relationship. It's a transaction. It's a business deal. And we have people that call themselves Christians but they're quid pro quo Christians or they're hobby Christians or they're casual Christians or they're social Christians or fair weather Christians. But what Luke is saying is there's not really a difference between being a genuine Christian and being a disciple. You can't be a Christian without being a disciple. And what makes a disciple a disciple is complete and total commitment to Jesus Christ. 
What makes a Christian a Christian is not that you prayed a prayer or raised your hand or signed a card or walked an aisle or got baptized or got confirmed. Those things don't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is the same thing that makes you a disciple. Just like saltiness makes salt salt, total commitment to Christ makes a disciple a disciple. See, a disciple is not a spiritually mature Christian. A disciple or a Christian is someone who is actually following Jesus, even if they're the last one in line. That's what we've been saying for a couple of years now. A disciple is someone who is actually following Jesus, even if they're the last one in line. It might be two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, two steps back. It might be, I fell down, I sinned, I got back up. I fell down, I sinned, I got back up. I fell down, I sinned, I got back up. But are you actually following Jesus, even if you're the last one in line? That's what a disciple is. And that's what Luke is calling us to. This passage is not just how to be a spiritually mature Christian. This passage is about how to be saved. Total, radical commitment to Christ. A half-hearted disciple is no disciple at all. A non-committal Christian is not really a Christian. Now, if this makes you uncomfortable, it should. It made me uncomfortable this week. Jesus said it like this to be disruptive to our spiritual complacency and our apathetic faith and our laziness in doing what God's calling us to do. He's challenging us. He's rattling the cage a little bit. He's being disruptive in our hearts, and he has the right to do that because he's the son of God. The third principle or implication of this passage is this. Finish what you started, and God will finish what he started. Stay with Jesus, and he will lead you through. In this passage that Jesus is teaching, he uses two illustrations. He sets them kind of uh, side by side. First, he talks about a tower. Look at verse 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, what is he talking about here? He's saying, don't start something that you can't finish You have started something with Christ. You have prayed the sinner's prayer. You have made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've even been baptized as a declaration of that commitment. So don't start what you can't finish. Commit to finishing it with Jesus no matter what the cost. You have followed Jesus through the garden. Will you follow him through the desert? You've climbed the mountain with Jesus. Will you walk with him through the valley. The path to resurrection leads to the cross first. The path to eternal life goes to the valley of the shadow of death. If we're not willing to go to the cross, if we're not willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can never get to the resurrection life that's on the other side. We have to be willing to go the distance, no matter what, in the garden and in the desert, on the mountain and in the valley when times are good and when times are hard. That's what building a tower means. Commit 
to following Jesus no matter the cost. The second illustration that he gives is about waging a war. In verse 31 he says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, I wrestled with this a little bit this week to figure out how these two illustrations that Jesus gives fit together. What does building a tower have to do with waging a war? And he seems to be saying, if you're going to build a tower, see it through to the finish. But if you're going to wage a war, you might as well surrender before you start. So they seem to be kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. But actually what he's talking about is two sides of the same coin. One is our commitment to stay with Jesus no matter what. That's building the tower. The other is our recognition that we don't actually have the strength to finish what we started. Only God does. And, and we might think, okay, I'm going to white knuckle my way through the Christian life. I'm going to finish what I started. But as long as we're acting in our own strength, we're going to fail. It's not until we give up and give it over to God and surrender to him and yield to him and let him work his strength and his power through us, that's when we are able to finish what we started. So it's really two sides. We finish what we started with Jesus, but God finishes what he started in us. And that's the only way we get through. Because there are things that we will face in life that we don't have the power in and of ourselves to deal with. A few minutes ago, uh, when the new members were being introduced, you met Kevin and Thea Janish. Uh, you might have recognized them uh, last Sunday. They were up on, I think it was last Sunday, they were playing cello and violin. Uh, and they were playing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And as they were playing that, I j- my heart was just b- bursting. Because what you may not know, and some of you may know this, but what you may not know is Kevin was recently diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. He's 37 years old, stage four stomach cancer. He has a long road ahead of him. Now, they don't actually have the strength in and of themselves to fight that battle. But yet, knowing what they're facing, they're able to sit up here and lead us in singing, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Even though... I've been diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. Great is thy faithfulness. Even if God chooses not to heal me, great is thy faithfulness. Even if I die early, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And as they were playing that, and as they were singing that, it was everything I could do to stop from crying because I thought that is faith. That is being committed to finish what you started with God and yet recognizing that you don't have the strength to do that and it's only God working through you that carries you through. It is only his power in you that will lead you to the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. That's what it means to finish what you started and yield to God so that he can finish what he started. My prayer for you this year is the same as Paul's prayer to the Christians in the city of Philippi. In Philippians chapter one, verses three through six, the apostle Paul wrote this prayer for the Philippians. And this is my prayer for you. I thank my God every time I remember you. 
In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's Christ who began the good work in you and it is him who will carry it on to completion until the day that he returns. Jesus isn't looking for fans, he's looking for followers. Half-hearted disciples are not disciples at all. But if we will commit to finish what we started with Christ, God has promised to finish what he started in us. It's not going to be easy, but he will be there with you every step of the way. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. We're going to conclude our service with communion this morning. Communion is an opportunity to re-up with Jesus, right? So, so communion is like a renewal of the wedding vows. I prayed to receive Christ. I made this decision to follow Jesus. But now it's time to renew our vows, to think about the cost. I know that there will be difficult times in life. I know that things will not always be easy. I know that sometimes Jesus will take me through the garden and sometimes he will take me through the desert. Am I willing to walk with him? And communion is an opportunity to say, yes, I am willing to walk with him. It's a, it's a public declaration of our willingness to go with Jesus no matter what, no matter where he leads. So we're going to sing, we're going to take a few minutes to pray, to think, to contemplate, to ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we've been complacent in our lives, where we've gotten lazy or apathetic in our faith. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what our next step is. And if we're willing to renew our vows to Christ, if we're willing to re-up with the Lord, we will sign our name on the dotted line of his communion table by taking communion together. Now, at Lakeview Church, you do not have to be a member of the church to take communion. But what we do ask is that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. That you are a person who has decided to be totally committed to Christ no matter what. If you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus through the ups and the downs, then we would ask you to not take communion this morning until you're ready to commit to Christ completely. Maybe you haven't started that decision yet and you've noticed this morning that my sermon has not been a sales pitch. I haven't been selling you a product that will make your life better. Following Jesus is not always gardens and roses. Sometimes he leads us through the desert. And the reality is this, and I heard a pastor say this recently and it really stuck with me. The reality is this, you will face pain and suffering and sorrow and loss in this life. Every single one of us will. There is no escape from the darkness of this world. There is no escape from the pain and the suffering and the loss that we will face in life. The question isn't, how do I get away from it? The question is, how am I going to deal with it? Are you gonna deal with the pain and the sorrow and the loss and the challenge and the hurt by numbing the pain through drugs and alcohol and substances? Are you going to deal with the pain by forgetting the pain through sex or pleasure or work? Are you going to deal with the pain by escaping it 
in a fantasy world of video games? Are you going to try to comfort yourself through the pain with food or something else? Or would you like to have the creator of the universe walk through that pain with you and give you his supernatural strength to endure it? Would you like to have someone who says, listen, if you will walk with me, if you will stay with me, when the going gets tough, I will carry you. When you can't take another step yourself, I will pick you up and I will carry you through the dark night of the soul. I will carry you through the desert. I will be there with you. you. There will never be a time when you do not have my love. There will never be a time when you do not have my strength. There will never be a time when you do not have my power to get you through whatever this pain is. You'll have my unconditional acceptance and love and grace in your life. And that's how you can get through to the life on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. We all have to walk through that valley, whether we walk it with Christ or whether we walk it alone. The question is, how do you want to walk through it? And if you have not decided to walk through that valley with Christ yet, You can do that this morning and then you can declare your commitment to follow Christ by taking communion as your first step of signing your name on that dotted line and saying, I'm all in with Jesus no matter what. No matter where he takes me, I will follow. Let's sing and let the Holy Spirit convict and guide and lead.